Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, November 27th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. bellies full of Thanksgiving turkey, it's time to acknowledge that we're in the full swing of the holiday season. This probably means that you've got a few gifts to buy, and we here at Science in the City thought we'd try to help out. We've gathered a handful of scientists and people who work in science to talk about their favorite books that all have to do with, you guessed it, science. From children's classics to real-life stories of scientific discoveries, We've got tons of page-turning ideas for you to wrap up. Or maybe just read yourself. So, I've got some news for you, Science in the City listeners. Size does matter, especially when we're talking nanoscale. On December 7th, join Science in the City for the final event in our Provocative Thinkers in Science series, an exploration into the itty-bitty tiny world of nanoscience with photographer Felice Frankel and nanotechnology engineer George Whitesides. They've got a new book out called No Small Matter, and they'll talk about the beauty, the science, the benefits, and the risks that come with the microscale. Get your tickets online at nyas.org slash provocative thinkers. Our first book recommendation comes from biologist Helen Fisher. She'll be speaking at the Academy on January 5th as the first event in our Science in the City Girls' Night Out event series. I'm Helen Fisher. I'm a biological anthropologist at Rutgers University and the author of five books on romantic love and sex and marriage and divorce and gender differences and personality. I'm recommending a book called As Nature Made Him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl by a man called John Colapinto, C-O-L-A-P-I-N-T-O. I was asked to write a quote for the back jacket, and I didn't have time. I never did it. And from that day to this, I'm sorry I didn't, because it's one of the spectacular books of certainly the last 50 years, but in some respects the last 500 years. The story is about a pair of identical twin males born in Canada who were taken in for their circumcision, I think in about seven, after 17 months after birth, and the doctor had an accident and actually cauterized or burned off the penis of one of the two boys. And the parents were absolutely devastated, and they saw on television some advertisements by a guy called John Money, a psychologist from Johns Hopkins University, who reported that he could help people who didn't quite know what sex they were. There's a lot of babies that are born with sort of genitals that look somewhat male and somewhat female, and that he could do various operations and and help them sort of acquire their correct gender. And so this couple, the parents of these two young boys, went to John Money, and they all decided that they should change this little boy who no longer had a penis into a little girl. They started dressing the little boy as a girl. They gave the little boy a girl's name. They encouraged the other twin, the boy twin, to go out and throw snowballs and play in the dirt, and they encouraged the little girl to stay home and bake cookies and play with dolls. And when I was in graduate school, 
that study by John Money was the single most important study, actually, of many of the social sciences, because it was supposed to prove that we really are born a blank sheet of paper and that culture can make a boy into a girl. In other words, we do not come into this world with a host of inherited male and female aptitudes, tastes, uh, and capacities. And I knew perfectly well in graduate school that that was not true, and it was not true because I'm an identical twin. And ever since I was a small child, I've been able to watch some of the characteristics of my twin sister and myself with sort of astonishment that we really did think and do a great many things alike and that this came from biology, not from our culture. What this book gives to the social sciences is a profound understanding that many of our characteristics come from our biology, that you cannot remake a very flexible-minded person into somebody who's stubborn. You can't make somebody who's not curious into somebody who's terribly curious. Yes, you can increase their curiosity, but we're dealt a hand of cards genetically, and the environment certainly can turn on some of those genes and turn off some of those genes and cultivate certain interests and capacities and jeopardize other capacities, but basically there is some biology to behavior. And when this book came out, I, I was... I was reading it um, later on, and it's the only book in my life where having, when I, as I was reading this book, I'll never forget this, on a particular Saturday in the middle of the summer, all my windows were wide open, it was really warm in my room, I was extremely comfortable, I read this book, and I literally put my head down on my desk and cried, because it's so important to realize that personality has some biological basis. That book again was As Nature Made Him, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl, by John Colapinto and published by HarperCollins. From one biologically determined trait to another, next up is psychologist Paul Ekman. If you want to read one book about emotion, I would recommend Darwin's Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, published in 1872, but I hope you would read the third edition, which I edited, largely because in Darwin's book, I've put over a hundred commentaries from a modern point of view by myself and other scientists. So you get to find out how much of what Darwin said more than a hundred years ago is correct and what it has led to. It's a brilliant book. It was a bestseller in its own time. It was the foundation and the first book of psychology before that field existed. Beautifully written, you'll learn about emotions in bees, in horses, and in humans. And uh, of course you'll find out there are a number of similarities. It's very well written, it's very accessible. He writes in a charming modern style. It's full of stories and uh, Last night I was being interviewed by a journalist in Grand Central Station and we were sitting in a cafe and sitting next to us listening to our conversation was an animal rights activist and of course she knew that book and she chimed in because Darwin really by saying that animals have emotions they're not unique to humans He was a hero of the animal rights people. The other thing that was 
quite radical, more than ignored, disputed uh, in this country, uh, in most of the 20th century, was that our emotions are the product of our evolution and therefore universal to our species. They're not a cultural product. They're not like language. They are, in the words of the Dalai Lama, one of my co-authors, what unify all human beings. We all have the same emotions. And Darwin, in his book in 1872, proclaimed that the universality of emotion showed the unity of mankind. Paul Ekman was talking about the expression of the emotions in man and animals by Charles Darwin. The third edition, which was edited by Ekman, is published by Oxford University Press. I'm Stacy Bloom, and I am the Vice President and Scientific Director at the New York Academy of Sciences. So what is the book you're recommending? The book that I'm recommending is called Born on a Blue Day, Inside the Extraordinary Mind of an Autistic Savant, and it's written by Daniel Tammet. What are people going to get if they pick it up and read it? So this is a really interesting book. I picked it up because I have a background in neuroscience. This is a book about autism, which is really a newsworthy topic today. I'm also a mother, and as a parent, you hear so much about the increased prevalence of autism in society today and the fact that really nobody understands this disease. So both as a neuroscientist and a parent, I was interested in reading this. So is it a novel or is it a sort of true account? Of it's an autobiographical account written by the author. So the author is an autistic savant. He's a 27-year-old British guy, young guy. He's known for having recited the number pi up to 22,000 decimal points. The savant characteristics that he has are related to his memory. So for example, in the book, he learns the Icelandic language, which is apparently one of the most difficult to learn in, an, in a week. He's fluent. So what's really interesting is his ability to write and express his disease, really. I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in understanding more about this really mysterious disease. Again, that book was called Born on a Blue Day, Inside the Extraordinary Mind of an Autistic Savant by Daniel Tammet, published by Free Press. Next up is a quick pick from inventor and entrepreneur Dean Kamen. I caught him in the car on the way to one of his many calendar appointments, so please excuse the bad cell phone reception. I just finished reading one little book called A Calculus for Cats, as in, you know, C-A-T-S. It's sort of directed at somebody who likes math but may or may not have ever really gotten to understand the elegance and the subtlety of mathematics, you know, of, let's say, calculus, differential equations. You don't have to have any calculus background to read and appreciate it, but if you do, it makes it even a little neater. I'd say somebody that took at least an elementary course in calculus would find this a very uh, uh, enlightening book. It's not a textbook. It's not going to teach you calculus, but it will certainly give you a perspective. Dean Kamen recommends Calculus for Cats by Ken Omdahl and Jim Lotz. It's published by Clearwater Publishing. You might remember Nilda Mesa from our Greening Columbia podcast. She's the Assistant Vice President of Environmental Stewardship at Columbia University, and she has two books to recommend. Here's the first. Ship Fever by Andrea Barrett. It is a collection of short stories and novellas, some of
of which take place today, some of which take place in the 19th century, and they all have a science theme running through them, but it's like science in the real world. So one of the ship fever, which is the novella in it, is about um, one of the most devastating sort of illnesses to occur on a ship that was parked in the St. Lawrence Seaway, and hundreds of people died from from this, and it was immigrants who were coming to Canada for a better life. And so it's about, it's basically epidemiology, it's about the spread of this disease on the ship and its impact on, you know, folks who are seeking to live a better life. But then there are also these great stories, like there's this one story about Linnaeus as an old man, and he sort of doesn't really remember too many things anymore. <laughs> there's this other story about, the you know, that's essentially... Um, a scientist who was very close to her grandfather, who was a gardener and really amateur biologist and taught her about genetics um, as he was gardening and how this completely affected her life and and it became her work and passion and so forth. It's a great book. It's just beautifully told stories. They capture the interplay between science and inquiry and the love of inquiry and real life and how it all weaves together. Nilda's second book is a children's classic. The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. It's kind of a dark book, actually, for childhood, because it's really all about the destruction of an ecosystem from greed. And But but not it's not necessarily done with consciousness. I mean, it, it's not like this ecosystem is destroyed because people want to destroy the ecosystem. It's just that they want to make a living, and they think bigger is better, and they keep getting bigger and bigger. And in the process, you know, this ecosystem that's this, from this fantastical world slowly dies. And even though there are all these warnings, like whoever's, you know, doing the, you know, the sort of factories and so forth is like not really paying attention. They don't really want to hear it because they're doing so well on the business stuff. But when the ecosystem finally dies, then so does everything else. And I think that's very telling. And it, it just, it could not be more timely, I think, these days. But it's, I think it's a good fable, and I think it's a really good fable for a parent to read to their kid. And my kids are, are older than traditional Dr. Seuss audiences. I mean, they're not like five and six years old anymore, but they're, you know, middle school or whatever, and they still really like this book because it's, it's, it's a good story. But what I also like about it is that at the very end, you know, just when you think it's all gloom and doom and destruction and there's just one word he ends it with and he just says, unless. And so you're left with like, oh, wait, this really is a fable. And in fact, perhaps there's something here that's within our power to, you know, to change and, you know, we can affect the outcome of this. And I think that's a really good message. Nilda recommended Ship Fever by Andrea Barrett and published by W.W. Norton & Co. And The Lorax by Dr. Zeus, published by Random House. We've got more great book recommendations coming up following this quick message from Science in the City. Science in the City needs your help. Yes, yours. We know you like our podcasts. You're listening right now. But did you know that you're actually a big part of these podcasts? The Science and the City program relies 100% on your financial support. You can help us by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences or donating directly to the program online at scienceandthecity.org donate. Sponsorship and underwriting opportunities are also available. Next up, we've got Corey Powell, the editor-in-chief of Discover Magazine. The first book I would like to recommend is Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. It's not commonly thought of as a science book, but I'm going to 
I'm going to make a pitch for it anyway. Probably the, the most relevant part of the, the book is the, uh, the section on the, the flying island of Laputa, which is basically an extended parody of, of scientific method and the scientific mindset. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's about a society uh, in which people operate so rigorously by reason and, the, and cerebral life that they've lost the ability to interact with the world, and so they have to hire basically helpers who whack them on the head with a bag of rocks every few minutes just to uh, shock them back to consciousness and connection to the everyday world. It's, it's sort of a it's a parody of uh, of the the over intellectualized scientific mindset. Uh, but really, I mean, through the through the whole book, you know, sort of a, along with uh, along with lawyers and and politicians, uh, Jonathan Swift had a pretty good eye for the sort of ridiculous ways that scientists kind of overdo materialism and reductionism. And he does some pretty, pretty sharp parodies, at, like the flying island of Buddha, but also uh, the, the last section, the, the land of the Huynhams, the, uh, the, the hyperlogical horses, which is itself a, uh, I don't know, there's a reason people say Swifty and satire. This guy really knows his, knows his craft. I would buy it for pretty much anybody who... Uh, went through a painful period in high school in which you were forced to read Gulliver's Travels before you could actually appreciate that it's, that it's a really funny book. Because I think most people either either avoided reading it or you know read it at some stage in life where they were forced to and didn't really appreciate what they were reading. Uh, so it's really, you know, it, it's, the thing is, it's funny. It's actually just, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's entertaining adventure. It's, it's good satire writing. And if you want to kind of dig into it a little, a little bit deeper, it's uh, you know like I said there there's some there's some actual pretty serious intellectual ideas going on in there to to grapple with. Gory had a hard time picking favorites, so we let him talk about two other books too. Uh, actually, these are two books that were just very personally influential to me, uh, and they're both just really really beautiful examples of science writing. Uh, one is uh, Carl Sagan's The Cosmic Connection, which was the first of his big popular books. Uh, it was the one that really kind of originally put him on the map. And all of the essays that were written in the 1970s, they're actually still very relevant to how astronomy works today and sort of what makes people excited about astronomy today. And even the things that are outdated and things that have changed, uh, the way that they've changed is very much by following the, the line of inquiry that, that Sagan set out back then. So he has a whole, he has a whole essay about, about looking for planets around other stars, which was, you know, written, you know, Probably, you know, over over 20 years before people actually found them, and yet he wrote about it in very much the way that people are doing the science today. Uh, it's just a, just a, a, it's a beautiful book. It's very it's full of kind of inquiry. And the other book, which is actually somewhat similar in spirit, although pointing you know pointing very much down toward our planet rather than up to the skies, uh, is the Immense Journey by Lauren Isley, which is a series of nature essays. Um, Later in his career, Lauren Isley had a little, a little bit of a sort of a kind of a new age reputation to the kind of writing he did. But uh, these are a question of earlier essays, and again, they're just beautiful meditations on nature, the natural process, evolutionary biology, the history of life on Earth, um, and they're all written in this very immensely personal and very, very rich style that is light years away from from you know what we call sort of the, the dry end of science journalism that. Uh, Those three books were Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, published by Penguin Classics, Carl Sagan's Cosmic Connection by Carl Sagan, and published by Cambridge University Press, and finally, The Immense Journey by Lauren Isley, and that's published by Random House. 
we will finish up with three classic recommendations. So I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm an astrophysicist and director of New York City's Hayden Planetarium. I'm still a fan of the children's book On the Day You Were Born, and I think the author is Deborah Fraser. It's a book that is highly scientifically literate, and it captures things that are going on in the universe every day, but makes it special for the birthday of this new child who comes into the universe. I don't know, it, it just warms me every time I pick up the book and read it. My kids are way too old for it now, but I still pick it up and read it. <laughs> so another book I think that's got to be on everybody's reading list is Unscientific America. I think Chris Mooney, and I forgot who the second author is, that's a book that's just a reality check on the challenges that we face as a nation as we go forward in the 21st century where science literacy will make the difference between a nation that succeeds economically and a nation that fails. How susceptible we are as human beings to uh, believing things in the absence of evidence. People, people believe what feels good rather than what's true. And that's never a good recipe because the truth matters. Another one, just because it's, it's just fun to go out to the limits of our science and our imagination, um, I would put in a vote for Michio Kaku's The Physics of the Impossible. It's one thing to think of the laws of physics or the laws of nature as limiting your imagination, but in fact, they don't. They, yes, they tell you what's not possible, but they also tell you what's possible. And the physics of the impossible is a step into things that you thought couldn't be done, but in fact are not prohibited by the laws of physics. And, of course, there's that old adage, whatever is not explicitly prohibited by the laws of physics actually must happen somewhere in the universe, given how long the universe has been around and how big it is. So there are possibilities that I think we haven't fully explored that the laws of physics allow. So it's not really the physics of the impossible. It's the physics of things we think it, that we always thought was impossible. I mean, the word physics can throw people off, but... I don't think it needs to, because it's applied to things that show up in everyday life. Things in pop culture, what is a warp drive possible? We hear it talked about all the time in, in science fiction. And so I think everyone should hard-working day with a moment to sit down and dream about what a future world could be if technology didn't limit us only the laws of physics. Neil recommends On the Day You Were Born by Deborah Fraser, published by Harcourt Children's Books. Unscientific America by Chris Mooney and Cheryl Kirschenbaum, published by Basic Books. And Physics of the Impossible by Michio Kaku, published by Anchor. So I hope we've given you some gift ideas, or at least some new reading material for this holiday season. Have your own favorite science book that we didn't talk about? Let us know about it by joining one of our online communities. You can find us on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash sciandthecity, or you can search for us on Facebook. Science in the City is a nonprofit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we'd love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. 
Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.